0: The Whalers,
1: The Mammals,
0: Tom Chapin,
1: Tom Paxton,
0: and Margo Thunderbird
1: are just a few of the many performers at the Clearwater Festival on June 15th and 16th
0: at Croton Point Park on the Hudson River.
1: You can get a full weekend pass and support WBAI at the same time with a $95 donation. That's the early bird price that's not available anywhere else but here on WBAI. Call 516-620-3602
0: 516 620 3602, or go to www.give2wbai.org and put Clearwater in the search box. See you, See you at, at the, the festival.
2: festival. There's- Sun,
3: Hi, I'm Laura Flanders of The Laura Flanders Show, which airs Saturdays, 6.30 p.m. here on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. The Left Forum is right around the corner, and they have generously donated weekend passes to WBAI listener supporters who make a $50 pledge in support of WBAI. I've had the pleasure of hosting many panels and plenaries at the Left Forum over the years, and I'm doing it again this time. I'll be hosting the Saturday plenary on the 50th anniversary of Stonewall and a session with Chris Hedges and Rick Wolf on Lenin. So come meet me, Laura Flanders, and the others at the 2019 Left Forum and be part of a conversation about radically imagining and building a different future. Make a pledge of $50 today and lock in your free weekend pass to the Left Forum, taking place in Brooklyn, June 28th through June 30th. That's the 28th through the 30th in Brooklyn. Go to give, then the numeral 2, WBAI.org. That's give to WBAI.org and search Left Forum. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening. See you at the Left Forum. Thanks to you. Thank
2: you.
4: Thank each and every one of you for
5: coming by. And while he's thanking those folks, let me take this opportunity to thank all of you, our listeners and support staff, our contributors, our interns, the volunteers, producers, and the entire crew that works countless hours to bring WBAI into your lives. Thank you.
6: This is Phil Donahue. And you're listening to WBAI, New York.
0: 99.5.
7: A moment that became a movement, a revolt that became a revolution, an uprising that lifted up the passions and purpose of a generation that had for far too long been persecuted because of who they loved and who they wanted to freely be. Good morning, I'm Jeff Simmons, and welcome to WBAI's special coverage, Pride, Progress, and Politics, 50 Years Since Stonewall. June 28th marks the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Rebellion, which erupted after a police raid of the Stonewall Inn. As acclaimed author Martin Duberman wrote in his pioneering account, Stonewall, has become synonymous over the years with gay resistance to oppression. Today, the word resonates with images of insurgency and self-realization and occupies a central place in the iconography of lesbian and gay awareness. The 1969 riots are now generally taken to mark the birth of the modern gay and lesbian political movement. That moment in in time when gays and lesbians recognized all at once their mistreatment and their solidarity. As such, Stonewall has become an empowering symbol of global proportions. So today, at the start of World Pride Month here in New York City and across the world, we'll explore the impact of Stonewall. How that first brick that was tossed outside the Stonewall bar cemented a movement for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, questioning, intersex, and asexual rights and how it has shaped laws, motivated people to run for office, and influenced popular culture. In the 50 years since Stonewall, we can consider the significant victories that have been achieved in the pursuit of equality. But we also have to consider the setbacks along with the strides. The fact that violence and incidents of hate, even here in New York City where a pride flag was burned in Harlem on the cusp of this celebratory month, still pervade our society. We are at a point in our nation's history where many of us, me included, are grateful for the advocates and the leaders who stood up and spoke out to yield us more rights and greater tolerance. But some of those rights are now under threat and under attack by a presidential administration where words and actions don't always seem to matter, but to us they do. And often those words and actions have been harmful. So over the next four hours, I'll bring you conversations with some of the leaders who've been determined to end oppression, who have organized, who have challenged long, long-standing discriminatory practices. And stay with WBAI all afternoon because at 3 o'clock, the folks from Radio Gag, Gays Against Guns, continue our coverage. And then at 4.30, you'll be treated to further coverage from the team at Out FM. Now, I should note that today is the last day of our spring fundraising drive, so we also have a particularly noteworthy opportunity for you to discover more about Stonewall. If you give $50 today by calling 516-620-3602 or pledging online at Give2, that's the number 2, WBAI.org, or even... Texting WBAI to 11444, you can receive a CD from Pacifica Radio Archives, Remembering Stonewall a radio documentary on the birth of a movement narrated by Michael Schurker and produced by David Isay. This program uses views of the participants, examines the gay life both before and after the event and its impact upon gay politics and history in the country. And you'll see hear from such participants as Deputy Police Inspector Seymour Pine, Sylvia Rivera, as well as a number of others, including Jim Ferrat, founder of the Gay Liberation Front. So if you are listeners, enjoy WBAI, and are committed to even um, more commercial-free, listener-supported, non-corporate radio, and you want to share the story story of Stonewall with others, please give a call today at 516-620-3602. Again, that's 516-620-3602. And I thank you in advance. So now we're going to go on to our first guest. First elected to the New York State Senate in 1998 and representing New York's 29th Senate District, he became the Senate's first openly gay and first openly HIV-positive member. This I am speaking of, Tom Duane. Tom served seven years in the New York City Council before moving over to the State Senate, and Senator Duane was the ranking member of the Senate Committee on Health. He had a number of signature accomplishments in the state legislature, including the passage of what was known as SONDA, the Sexual Orientation Non-Discrimination Act. And am going to let him talk about his other accomplishments, so I won't list them all off. But since retiring from the state Senate, he's continued his advocacy work on behalf of the LGBTQIA community, and it's a pleasure to have him today. Welcome to WBAI, Tom.
6: Thank you very much, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be with you, and happy Pride Month.
7: Happy Pride Month to you as well. So as we're looking at the anniversary of Stonewall that's coming up, what are some of your thoughts and reflections?
6: Oh, boy.
7: I know it's a broad question, but I want to give you the opportunity to tell me what you're thinking about this month as you think of 50 years since Stonewall.
6: Reminds me that when I was in the state Senate and uh, the gay caucus would be meeting, it would be meeting in my head all the time, (laughs) 24-7. And sometimes it disagreed with itself. Um, What have I been thinking about? Um, Well, one of the things that I I have uh, maybe been speaking a little bit out more on now is that it was in 1989, so it's another anniversary, was when the New York State Court of Appeals used me have allergies.
7: <coughs> I, I feel your pain on this day. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <coughs> I'm happy to be alive to have them, but give me a, uh, <coughs> one moment. So as as you're doing that, just want to just as you're getting a drink of water, just want to also let our folks know you were also instrumental in the passage of the Hate Crimes Protection Protection Act of 2000 and also the prime sponsor of GENDA, the Gender Expression Non-Discrimination Act, which had been passed numerous times by the State Assembly but could not come up for a vote in the Senate. And I know that you were consistently pursuing this legislation. Do we have you back? <coughs> Okay, we'll just wait a few more moments for you. Um, Just want to remind our listeners as we're waiting, if you are listening today and you would like to contribute, that number was 516-620-3602, and you'll be able to receive this special CD from Pacifica Radio Archives, Remembering Stonewall. It's a radio documentary on the birth of a movement. Tom, are you back with us? (coughs) I am, but I'm
6: still having a little bit of It does not usually happen to me. One more moment.
7: Okay. Okay. So just so I'll tell our listeners a little more about that special gift you can receive, the pledge number I gave you, but you also can go online to give to WBAI.org. Uh, some of the voices you will hear on this were uh, Sylvia Rivera, a drag queen that uh, played a prominent role uh, in the uh, in the Stonewall Uprising. Also, uh, the founder of the Lesbian Herstory Archives. And later on uh, during our show, we will be talking with a curator from the New York Historical Society about their Stonewall exhibitions that just launched, including one that includes a number of items from the Lesbian Her- Herstory Archives. Archives. And also Jim Ferrat, who I had gotten to know a number of years ago, one of the founders of the Gay Liberation Front, uh, one of the organizations uh, that was founded right in the wake of Stonewall uh, to be able to bring people together. Uh, and you will talk a little about that later on with one in our first hour with one of our guests, Carla J, who will be joining us soon. Coming up throughout the day as we're waiting for Tom, Tom, let us know when you're back. Uh, we will also have... Uh, former Congressman Barney Frank on the show. And we'll also be talking to a, a good friend of mine, trans activist Melissa Sklars, about how trans rights have been under attack uh, by, under this presidential administration. And uh, coming up also later this hour, right after Tom, we will have uh, one of his protégés, uh, former New York City Council Speaker Christine Quinn, who will be joining us. And we also have Randy Weingarten coming up. Uh, Randy Weingarten, former head of the United Federation of Teachers here in the city and now the head of the American Federation of Teachers based in Washington, D.C. He'll talk about how unions uh, have come to become heavily involved in the fight for equality. Tom, are you back with us? Okay, so uh, we're not sure if we're going to have Tom back on. We will leave this line open to see. Ah, you're back.
6: I'm going to do my best to squeak through it.
7: Okay, so I won't keep you long. We'll have Christine Quinn coming on in about another uh, another 10 to 15 minutes, but I will not take up all of your time because I understand, I empathize with you when we have uh, bad allergic reactions. Trust me, I'm on several it, forms it of medication.
6: happened today <laughs> like this. You know, when there's a cloud cover, that's when it's actually worse, I have come to find out. So we have a little bit of a cloud cover. Good for the people that hope to be one of the marching in the – parade in queens today but not so great for allergy sufferers and, and, anyway, that, and,
7: that, and that's normally where i would be on a sunday afternoon the first <laughs> sunday in june as i'd be out there with uh new york city council member danny drum and all the electeds and organizers uh marching in that parade talk to me a little about you know as we look at the anniversary of stonewall talk to me a little about what you see as some of the significant strides that we have witnessed you know in these decades since.
6: Well, I, in New York State, I, I do think that Barashi made an enormous uh, difference because it was the first time that uh, people who were referred to that as non-traditional family members were able to succeed to rent-protected apartments, um, rent-regulated apartments. And, of course, uh, it became a crucial issue because of the AIDS crisis. And if someone's name was not on the lease, um, their partner died they the survivor would have no right to the apartment at all and so uh not only would they lose their apartments and be evicted but the family member of the survivor could come in and take everything out of the apartment so it was a very very tough time and people didn't think it was possible that uh uh, our families would be recognized in any way but uh we were and uh, it was amazing and that was the basis for the first cases of uh, the non-biological parent in the same sex, uh, um, a same-sex couple having a child that the non-birth mother could have uh, the same parental rights as their partner who had given birth. And then just uh, case law moved on from there. But the beginning of recognizing our families in that way in New York State is very, very important.
7: Peter Staley had once written, uh, "There is a There's a Tom Duane lurking deep down in all of us, waiting to be heard." Given in your career, what did you want people to hear from you?
6: <clears throat> oh boy! Well, I wanted to demand equal rights on every level for all queer people, um, LGBTQIA uh, positive. Now it's plus, but it was also HIV-positive people. I wanted people to know that you could be living with HIV um, and live a life just like everybody else was living their lives, and and I really wanted fairness and equality for everyone, and I was very angry that that was not the case, and that's kind of what gave me my fighting spirit.
7: So... Thinking of the fighting spirit, I'm going back to that definitive moment of Stonewall uh, and reflecting on the uh, the challenging uh, relations between the NYPD and the gay community. How, in your view, have these relations changed? Do you feel that the, you know that the uh, the police, particularly in New York City, and the gay community, uh, have fostered a good relationship now, a strong relationship, or do you still see uh, fr- you know fractures?
6: Oh, boy, just go right to the most difficult issue of all. Uh, Absolutely, 1,000%, the relationship is very much improved. Um, There used to be no relationship except for a very hostile relationship. And now there is a relationship uh, for a whole host of reasons. You know, the police departments, like uh, any sort of military-ish organization, is slow to change, but... um, Openly gay people started to interact with the police department, and gay people started to come out in the police department, and all of those things came together to make a big difference. Um, I uh, had been on the board of the New York City Anti-Violence Project and involved with them pretty much since its inception, and uh, there has been at various times very good communication. Sometimes there have been problems as well, but there used to be no relationship at all. So while it could be better, it's so much better. There's more progress needs to be made and it's better. So um, I think that most police officers kind of want to uh, do the right thing. They want to, you know, help protect us from the bad guy, etc. But like uh, politicians or uh, nurses or, you know, subway uh, train conductors, most are good and some are not so good, and that's the case with the New York City Police Department. But my experience is most of them really do want to help people. But, um, you know, institutionally, it doesn't know make baked.
7: Are you still there, Tom? <clears throat>
6: yes, I'm just uh, – I'm sorry, Jeff. I'm just coughing again for a moment.
7: You know, we've all been there. <coughs> at least, here, oh, well. at least here, I have Sean's able to lower the volume on me if I have to sneeze or cough.
6: Well, but I, you know, of course, I'm a Irish Catholic, so I think this is my fault. So I keep saying <laughs> sorry a very Alan on way. <laughs> it's oh. not my fault. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I remember, uh, many years ago, uh, I was one of the uh, members of the Chelsea Gay Association when it first began. And we used to have rap session with police officers. And I will tell you that I thought that any time, Saturday mornings at 8, so this time wasn't so bad, to um, <laughs> with you. But whenever a police officer would say, but how did you tell your family? I would be like, he's gay. Or she's a lesbian. <laughs> 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 because that is the hardest uh, uh, question of all. But I, I think, you know, as in every, every place, everywhere, under every circumstances, the most powerful weapon we have is to be out, right That's a political statement, and it's one that we have to make every day. Is this the time when I mention it? Should I say something now? Is this the fight I want to do now? And on a different level, of course, in government, um, I would make that decision uh, in sort of the level of policy making. Do i you know I had to choose whether <clears throat> well, when I first got to Albany, do I Uh, loudly demand that domestic partners be included with spouses and say, you know, uh, benefits or survivor benefits uh, after 9-11, or do I quietly make the case because maybe there's a better chance to get it done that way. And my job really was to balance that all the time. And I think I made some good decisions. And I think, you know, I wasn't always made the right decision, but I never stopped trying and uh, just used different strategies until I could get done. (laughs) What needed to be get to get
7: done. So you, we, I, I think right now about the climate that we're living in, about the composition of the U.S. Supreme Court, about the comments that the, the president or his administration makes, and not just the comments, but the actions that they take. What world are we living in right now in this country when it comes to, uh, the you know LGBTQIA positive communities feeling safe and secure. You know, uh, where where do you feel we stand given this administration?
6: We uh, must not, in any way, shape, or form, be complacent. We have to hang on to our militancy because everything could go away. We already see that rights for uh, people of uh, transgender expression, gender expression, and identity, that um, they want to live uh, nine in, uh, in a non-binary world, if you will, which I think we all, been, I should say, I would certainly like to live in that world, we see that eroding. Um, first, we saw it happen with the military and the directive that transgender people could no longer sign up. But we're also seeing that the uh, Secretary of Health,
8: uh,
6: educate, health uh, uh, Welfare and Education in Washington is trying to remove all mentions of anything would do anything but force people to live within the bounds of the gender which they were born, uh, physical gender in which they were born. And uh, that is so dangerous and terrible. It was so hard to get changes in the federal government, whether it was, you know, uh, Health and Human Services or uh, <clears throat> the Education Department. So, you know, first they came for people of transgender experience. And they also are coming from for immigrants, and they're also coming for, you know what I mean, the list goes on. And queer is, like, up there as one of the groups uh, that is, you know, uh, great risk of losing everything. And I think that <clears throat> if we see the erosion of the rights of women to control their bodies, then I think you also see uh, that it's very possible for the queer community to lose control over our bodies and the way that we can live our lives. So we have to be vigilant and militant, and uh, everything uh, um, is going to be a struggle going forward. It seems like it's okay, but uh, I would always be on a state of constant alert.
7: So we've got just about two minutes left with you, and I really want to give you an opportunity to talk to me about what you see as your le- as your legacy uh, from your time in elective office.
6: Boy. That's all going to be in the book that I, I haven't written. Uh, well, <laughs> Maybe not. So I what would be, uh, actually,
7: the book you haven't written, if you do write this book, what will the title be?
6: <laughs> oh, Citizen Duane. <laughs> <laughs> very nice. As my friend James Lassie gave me that title. So I have to write a book just so I can use that title. Well, certainly I'm very proud of Brashy, Uh But, you know, when I was in college, I went to a very conservative college, Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. I started a gay organization there. It was not particularly welcome. It wasn't recognized by the university. There were only six of us who, uh, who were members, but it was already kind of a rabble rouser, I guess. And, uh, but the world has completely changed now there. If you're not uh, you know, gay or lesbian, then you're trans. It's all he is, uh, him, and uh, they, then theirs. It's unbelievable, and now they sort of like me again. So that's changed a lot. But just uh, you know, starting something gay there, Even though it was very difficult to keep it going and it ended when I left, um, there were certainly students there who knew that it was possible to be out. And then, you know, there was my work both in and out of the LGBT community um, and the greater community uh, with activism. But if there were milestones, I would say Brashi was one. Then, of course, the city council uh, getting Mayor Giuliani to uh, provide domestic partner benefits, complete, total, equal domestic partner benefits equal to spouses, um, and also the creation of the Division of Aid Services, now called Housing and uh, Housing and I'm sorry, I can't remember the services for people of AIDS. I guess. So, uh, uh, if I got that wrong, then we have to let it go. And then uh, I would say hate crimes and all that happened my first term. When I moved from the city council to the state senate, because uh, our local state senator had decided to run for attorney general, people said, why would you run for something you can't get anything done with an party?" I thought, if you think you can't get anything done, you can't get anything done. And even though my name wasn't on the bill, hate crimes got passed in my first session there. They got passed in my second session, although I was unhappy with some. I was happy generally that it passed, but I was very upset that uh, gender identity expression was not included. Um, and also, if you look at the marriage bill, uh, certainly that was a great milestone, although the bill that actually passed, my name is not on that bill, and I probably would have left out all the religious stuff about the ministers and rabbis and priests and didn't have to perform marriages, because they didn't have to perform marriages anyway, and I feel like it gave a bad uh, idea to a lot of our right-wing uh, 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 groups around the country. The only bill that did have my actual name on it was... Uh, the Dignity for All Students Act, which included gender identity expression and also weight. And so I'm very proud of that also because protecting the next generation is going to really change things. Uh, I have some heterosexual, but no, I shouldn't say that. Anything, anything that I pass, whether it's queer or non-queer affects both the queer and the non-queer community. I get some great legislation, I feel, on, uh, um, allowing uh, victims of sex trafficking to get felonies removed from their records so they could actually get jobs, um, the HIV uh, testing modernization legislation, uh, legislation that permitted people who had work-study or internship uh, uh, positions with our colleges that that would count towards their work requirement for public benefits. So <clears throat> bringing health care into our correctional facilities these are the kinds of things that I worked on that helped um, every community I think in New York State. Uh, so I'm I'm proud of uh, of those things. And um, you know it was, you know I learned how to navigate being in the minority. I was able to get a tremendous amount done by working with Republicans. I think in some ways I might have been their favorite because they knew who I was and what I stood for. And you know I'm a nice guy, but don't mess with me. <laughs> uh, and then I had <laughs> it's true. And then I had a couple of years. In the majority is chair of the health committee, and I just shoveled bills out, uh, extending the scope of practice for physician's assistants and nurse practitioners, including uh, nurse midwives. So uh, I was very happy about uh, the um, uh, Family uh, Decisions Act, which uh, laid out if someone has not uh, designated someone uh, as their uh, guardian, if you will, if they're incapacitated, the hospital and nursing home doesn't have to make the decision. There's actually uh, a, a priority order of people, uh, family members, who uh, get to make those decisions, and that happened like the first couple weeks that I was uh, chair of the health committee in the majority. So um, <clears throat> I would say, and I, I, I have, uh, you know, I, I I decided not to run for re-election while people still like me. Jeff, no one was <laughs> like, oh my god, he's staying so long. Was, they were a little sorry to see me go. But when but
7: when you <laughs> when you retired, when you anou- or you announced your retirement, I'd read this quote in the New York Times. You said that you're gonna uh, you're going to fight for people in your own small way <laughs> and try to make the world a better place. You're never going to stop doing that. So tell our listeners what you're up to now, besides you know working on your book, Citizen Dwayne.
6: Well, I am also uh, donating all of my archives as heads. Uh, Danny Drum, the council member from Queens. I'm donating all of my archives, which go back to college and all the way through uh, my, my time, uh, uh, my entire life. I'm donating all of those archives, which I have saved uh, to LaGuardia College. So if anyone wants to help me with a little clutter situation, I am very happy to take the help. I'm teaching a course at Baruch. Uh, this semester, this past semester, I taught uh, students who want to go into uh, public service. I did that last semester, but I've also taught uh, uh, business students uh, who were taking a government course as an elective and I loved that also because uh, uh, I wanted them to see how government impacted every part of their lives. I actually wanted to be a teacher when I left college but New York City was laying teachers off and while I got to do some teaching I taught in a New York City public high school once a week when I was in office in the Senate. Uh, <clears throat> I'm now doing it to undergraduates but I may go back and volunteer to do some teaching in high schools also. Um, because I love doing that. I'm going to try to catch the uh, Queen's uh, March slash parade today when I finish chatting with you. And, uh, you know, I, I, the, the, uh, the epidemic of violence against trans, particularly trans women and particularly trans women of color, is just, <clears throat> excuse me, an absolute horror. And everyone in our community should be fighting really hard against that. I went to a rally last weekend about this, but I think that uh, even more uh, queer people, non-transgender queer people, cisgender people need to go out there and fight alongside our sisters and brothers in the trans community, because that is where, right now, uh, the attack is the greatest. Uh, Listen, Showing up at a demonstration is a political act, so do it it's like the next step from just being out about who you are. That's the first big political step. But The next step is to stand shoulder to shoulder with other people who are at great risk of having even deeper oppression wasted upon them. So, and you know what? Queer people should run for office because there is no substitute for a seat at the table, definitely for public office, but also for party offices and party seats. Um, People should join their community boards. People should just get active because just being there makes a tremendous amount of difference. And the goal of mine if there's two, then when both people start uh, talking about queer issues, suddenly other people join in and you don't have to be the only one talking about it all the time. So uh, get out there and run everybody for office. I mean, you know how important that is, Jeff. It makes all the difference.
7: No, and in fact, you know, one of the uh, eye-opening uh, moments for me in the last few weeks uh, as we closed was the news conference that several organizations uh, uh- Organizations and electeds had just noting that the um, all I believe all or most of the current LGBT members of the New York City Council are term limited out. So uh, they were just uh, talking about the need for more LGBTQIA uh, positive candidates to run uh, for the 20, uh, 2021 elections.
6: Absolutely. And when you look at our community, even when I looked at the people standing on the steps of that press conference, we are everywhere. We are part of every community. We're incredibly diverse. Uh, uh, openly queer people have been elected in every borough in New York City, including Staten Island. It's always possible to win these elections. But even if you don't win, and you shouldn't run if you have no chance at all. and You can't raise money and people don't like you. I would suggest not running that. <laughs> but if you have a chance. Even if you lose, it's a winner because people get to know us better. And that changes everything. Even if I looked at referendums that have around the country, we would lose on, uh, you know, a rights. Uh, Things Seems to happen in the States with the capital, Portland, Maine, and uh, uh, Oregon. I was always going up to Maine to knock on doors for people to vote yes or no, or whatever. And we would lose and we'd lose. But every time we lost, the attention paid to it, changed people's minds and eventually won. And that's what happened with marriage as well, is that uh, just because it doesn't look like you could win, if you have a shot, go for it, because it's really uh, changing. There was an open seat on the east side back in the 90s, and uh, Wayne Fitzger who was the first uh, teacher in New York City to come out about his HIV status, ran on the east side There were about eight candidates running. But because he was in the race, everyone talked about HIV. So... It, you know, uh, uh, if if you are uh, uh, someone who has any credentials in your community, in the queer and non-queer community, I would talk to other people and just start planning on uh, a campaign or working on someone else's campaign. Um, it will, it, you know, I say that as, uh, when I'm being nice, I'll say elected official. Sometimes I say politicians a been punitive. But uh, <laughs> no matter what you say, then go work for people who are our best allies, or who are actually members of our community.
7: Uh, former Senator Tom Duane, thank you so much for joining me today. I know you've got to get out to Queens right now. About another 25 I, minutes, yes, that I, parade starts.
6: I need to talk to you another time, and I'm not choking from allergies, but <laughs> all of us allergy sufferers today, we're in solidarity. Queer and non-queer allergy sufferers unite. Tom,
7: thank, thank you, you so much. You. Feel Thanks better. To you. and happy thank you. And happy pride.
6: You too, and I'll see you this
7: month lots of times. I'm sure. Thank you. Okay. Take
6: care.
7: So the um, LGBT movement didn't begin with Stonewall, but it erupted into the public spotlight amid several days of protests and fostered a newfound resistance and new organizations where people were coming together, wielding a new power and a purpose. Protests were not new to Carla J. Berlin. She participated in the 1968 student protests on Columbia's campus and then the following year, when I believe she was 22, the Stonewall Uprising and riots erupted. Berlin joined the Gay Liberation Front and in 1970 became the first woman chair of the organization. And that same year, she helped to produce New York City's first ever Pride Parade and participated in the Pride Parade in Los Angeles. And towards the end of the decade, Carla Jane Berlin became professionally known as Carla J. And she is a pioneer in the field of lesbian and gay studies and a noted author. Carla J., welcome to WBAI.
0: Oh, thank you so much. I I actually changed my name in 1969 ah. during the women's movement. Ah, I'm getting um, I'm get my facts so right. it's so funny to hear this name, which trans trans people call the name they were born with their dead name. And I sort of feel that way about the name I was born with and so long ago since I actually heard it. But I want to say... It is so wonderful to be on BAI because it was on this station that I first heard about the Stonewall Uprising. Really? So it is so fitting to be here with you today because I was listening to WBAI. I did not have a television in 1969, and Charles Pitt, I'm I'm fairly certain, came on the radio and told me and and all the listeners about a police raid in the village at the Stonewall Inn.
7: And what were your what were your earliest recollections from that moment about, you know, uh like what did you do next when you heard about this? What did you, you know, what went through your mind?
1: Well,
0: it, the idea of a raid of course was something Everybody who was lgbt back then could identify with We all lived in fear of raids. They were not uncommon, uh, especially during election years when the city was determined to clean up things like uh vice prostitution gambling and we We were undesirables, and we all knew somehow what to do. We were all told that when the lights flashed in the bar, if you were dancing, separate from your partner, um, wear the correct clothing to the bar. We all knew about bar raids, and we all feared them. So when I heard about the Stonewall raid, I was just, um, you know, I had a lot of, uh, my heart started to pound because I had a lot of emotions about escaping from these raids and fear that one day i too would be swept up in such a raid and uh... but i had no other place to go we only had one lesbian bar in new york and we were grateful to have a lesbian bar So that's why people went to these places they were not lovely um, the stonewall was a private club and uh, unlike the bar I went to, you had to get a little card to go in. But, but there, were, there were dangers that were inherent in going to these bars. So I felt a lot of sympathy. I didn't know what to make of it. I, I thought it was really remarkable that people resisted. I knew the 4th of July was coming. It was the end of June. I wondered whether people were going to go off to Fire Island for the Fourth of July and nothing would ever happen out of this. There had been many bar raids. Uh, There had been resistance to bar raids in California. The uh, trans people had resisted at the Compton Cafeteria in San Francisco, at Barney's Beanery in Los Angeles. So this was not the first resistance either. Um, The difference really now was the fact that people like myself organized afterwards and formed the Gay Liberation Front and said, no, now we've had enough, we've had enough of these raids, we can no longer live like this, and we are going to do something so that no one ever has to have this terrible fear again, and that we can dance in peace, that we can dress the way we want, and we can congregate and live the way we want. That's, that's what was different about the Stonewall Uprising, was the aftermath.
7: And, and the Gay Liberation Front had, uh, uh, you know, had a broad platform, if I recall.
0: Yes, we were a front, which was named after the Vietnamese Liberation Front, and there were these kind of broad fronts that encompassed uh, many different kinds of people. And we had, um, we had people who had many different ideas of what to do. And um, we had a, an aquarium cell that wanted a cultural revolution, and that group formed dances and other kinds of social events. And we also had a lot of political cells that, that ticketed against newspapers, like the New York Times, the Village Voice, Um, And other newspapers, it's surprising today, I think, for people to hear that in 1969, no newspaper would print the word gay. It was considered a dirty word, and it could not be said. So that when we wanted to recruit people to come to a meeting, we couldn't even print an ad that said Gay Liberation Front, because the word gay itself was considered to be obscene. I mean, I mean, this is crazy today. So we picketed newspapers. We, um, uh, we, we also took over television shows. We, we marched. There were bar raids after the Stonewall, too. The worst one was in March of 1970. There was a bar called the Snake Pit. And, and this is important to remember that bar raids did not stop with the Stonewall. And after the snake pit, a man named Diego Diego Vinales, who was an illegal immigrant, and it's such a telling story today, he was afraid of being deported and outed to his family. He was from South America. He jumped out of the second story of the 10th Street police station. He jumped out of the window and landed on a spiked iron fence. And he landed on those spikes, and the the fire department had to come, blowtorch the fence in half, and take him, with the spike still in his stomach, to St. Vincent's Hospital. And that even wasn't the end of the raid. In August of 1970, the Gay Liberation Front came upon another bar raid in the village, And a riot started in the streets of the village in August of 1970. So these went on for a long time. But the fact that we said that we had had enough, that we organized huge groups outside the police precincts after the Snake Pit raid, that we marched a year later after the Stonewall. In fact, we marched a month later after the Stonewall uprisings. That's what stopped the bar raids and that's what started to change the culture
7: so talk to me a little about the evolution of the movement to become more inclusive over time because in the beginning there had been concerns about equal representation of men and women concerns that uh, women's issues or women were not being included as much talk to me about that evolution over uh, over in the initial stage and then over the coming decades
0: I think that's an interesting question, because if you look at coverage today, you would not believe how active lesbians were at the time of Stonewall. Um, If you look at the the print coverage and videos, you would believe that at the time of Stonewall, that action was primarily uh, by our trans sisters and also by gay men. But lesbians were extremely active. And then the Gay Liberation Front, in the late fall, we decided that in order to have more equal activity, we would pick a leader out of a hat. And uh, the person whose name was picked would be the chair for a month. And my name was the second name pulled out of the hat. And so I became the first woman chair of the Gay Liberation Front in January of 1970. We'd gone to that system in December. But the women were quite dissatisfied with the male dominance of the group, and we started to form our own activities that winter. We had our own dance in April of 1970, for which we almost died. It's important to recognize that really the first martyrs of the post-Stonewall uprising were actually lesbians. The first person who was killed after the Stonewall uprising was Lydia French, who was shot in her back, in her apartment in August of 1970. Does anyone remember this? No. She was a member of the Gay Liberation Front. We, in April of 1970, had a dance at the end of the w- which the mafia which was not an equal opportunity employer, they came to the cleanup and they started to beat up the women who had organized the dance and they had guns in their belts. Um, We were saved only because I escaped out the back door, had the number of Flo Kennedy, who was an African-American lesbian and was our lawyer. I had her number inked on her hand. She called the police and the press, and they came and they, they rescued us. The, the, the goons ran off, but they were, they were killing us up there because we wanted to have a dance. And um, that didn't stop us. We took on the women's movement with the Lavender Menace action. We formed consciousness-raising groups. The lesbians were extremely active and vocal, But we feel that we've been somewhat erased by history. We eventually formed a group called Radical Lesbians in the spring of 1970.
7: So Carla, we've just got about a minute or two left uh, before our next guest calls in. Uh, final thoughts on the legacy of Stonewall. Uh, you know I'm only giving you, I know there, it's broader than you know, you'll be able to say in three minutes, but what goes through your mind when you talk about how Stonewall has changed our society?
0: Everything has changed in our society because when we few walked up 6th Avenue, up Hollywood Boulevard, and up Market Street. Those were the first three marches. And we said to the people on the sidelines, we said, join us, join us. The people of the world did join us. And because of that, the world has changed in every conceivable way. Because we said we will never go straight until you go gay, the world in every way that you can think of has gone gay. And that, I think, is our greatest achievement.
7: Carla J., thank you so much for joining me. Jeff Simmons here on WBAI and also your comments about how you learned about Stonewall from WBAI.
0: And thank you, and thank you, BAI, for being here all these years for informing our community. And I hope listeners will continue to support you
7: thank you and have a wonderful pride
0: okay great bye-bye
7: so if you've ever participated in a march or parade in new york city you have witnessed the significant presence that unions have and locally in new york city i'd always noted the strong presence of the united federation of teachers at this month's pride march Uh, The former leader of the United Federation of Teachers was Randy Weintengarten, who now leads the National Union, the American Federation of Teachers. And it was actually at an Empire State Pride Agenda dinner in 2007 when she came out publicly saying that if she was going to move an agenda for tolerance, respect, and equality, then she needed to, quote, walk my own walk. She now joins us on WBAI. Welcome, Randy.
1: Hey, Jeff. How are you?
7: I'm doing fine. Thank you. So you are the first openly gay person to lead a national labor union. What did it mean for you to serve in this role?
1: Well, it's a lot of responsibility. Um, And I actually, that was part of what weighed on me so much. I mean, in New York, you know, I used to be somewhat delusional that um, everybody knew and I didn't have to say anything because the people who knew knew and that was enough. And that I would say, because I've been gay since, you know, I've been, I've, I've understood my, my that I was gay in the middle of the '70s. Um, so I just said, as long as I'm not going to be blackmailed, which I would not let myself do, I would not be closeted in that way. Um, that you know, I didn't have to actually utter the words, "I am a lesbian," and I kept, I thought about what it meant on the national stage with that, and that it would not be fair, not only to the LGBTQ community within the teaching ranks, but it wouldn't be fair to kids. It wouldn't be fair to anyone where you're talking about your own authenticity and your hiding, and you're talking about, you know, trying to create responsibility and fighting for rights and your hiding. So, you know, like Alan Van Cattel was the then leader of... um, uh, Empire Pride and he had actually seen me do this at the synagogue um, which I was a member of a long time ago at CBSP and so in June um, when I was their gay pride speaker I basically said I was not going to be a second class citizen in my own union and and that I would not let my own union during that period of time um, uh, take the easy route and basically, not um, even have a motion on the floor in Albany, um, which was our state union, to fight the then President Bush's attempt to rewrite the Constitution to ban gay marriage. And um, that so that actually was the first time. And I thought I found it quite remarkable, Jeff, that after Empire Pride, there was a bunch of articles, you know. You know, you know, you know the way the New York Post mm-hmm. works and whatever. And it was kind of a weird feeling the next morning. But afterwards, it was so freeing and so amazing. And, and and the piece that I remember most more than anything else in that period of that, you know, six-month period of time was at the synagogue, a few kids, young ladies, young girls, come up to me. Well, to me, they look like young. They're probably, um, you know, teenagers And they pulled at me, and they were crying, and I said, they said, thank you. Thank you for coming out. Thank you for giving us strength. And what you realize is that powerful people have to actually not only walk their walk for their own freedom, but it hugely, hugely helps anyone who is vulnerable. And that's what unions are, and that was my own process, and I felt really good about it. And, um, and, um, And I just wonder, I'm sad. But I didn't do it
7: earlier. So you mentioned the youth that had come up to you. And I'm curious about how um, teaching about LGBT issues has changed over time. Are students across the country learning about LGBT history? And does there need to be more? Done.
1: Well, in some places, yes. In some places, no. And this is part of the reason why the fixation on testing was so counterproductive. Well-being is the most important thing we can do in schools right now for our kids. Giving them a safe and welcoming environments and uh, climate in which they can learn, and in which inquiry and, and excitement about learning um, is first and foremost. And so all the fixation on testing and data and the penalties for that kind of retarded that for a long time. And part of got, what got lost was, except if it was you know um, February, and it was Black History Month, or March, and it was Women's History Month, or if it was Martin Luther King's birthday, um, a lot of history and uh, about um, about civil rights and cultural and, and, and the history of gay rights, the history of labor rights, the history of women's rights, all of which, the that, that, that democracy, all of which got um, got um, put to the sidelines for the fixation on math and, and English testing. So we're fighting to get this stuff back into the curriculum and... We're also, unfortunately, fighting in some places some cultural wars about that um, where there are places, particularly in the South, where, you know, it feels like the clock has well been turned back in terms of cultural, um, you know, stereotypes and mischaracterization.
7: So before Stonewall, the union movement had largely ignored issues facing the LGBT communities, but organized labor changed you know, soon after. And the AFT was the first union to recognize this. Talk about that shift in what the AFT did.
1: Well, you know, look, we were also, let's call it out, we were the first, we were, I don't know if we were the only union or the first union, but we expelled our segregated locals in the 1950s. So think about it, union, membership organization, expelling segregated locals. So, and we did that. Um, We also were, the only union to write an amicus brief in Brown v. Board of Education. I I think we may have been the only educational organization to write an amicus brief in favor of the kids in Brown v. Board. So this is, you know, sometimes it gets um, obscured because of the history of Ocean Hill, but this is who the AFT has always been. We have always been on the vanguard of how we fight the obstacles of discrimination. If you really believe in equality and opportunity, you have to fight discrimination because discrimination are obstacles. Bias is an obstacle. If you believe in educating the whole child, you have to make sure that kids can get to their own decisions, and 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 you have to fight bias in order to create that big-hearted, more tolerant country that we should have. So this it comes to us. From who, what our DNA has been, um, you know, I wouldn't say forever. I don't know what it was 100 years ago. Um, but certainly in the modern era, that's who we are. And just this week, um, I'm sorry, just last month, I guess it was this month. just No, last month, May. Just last month in our executive council, we um, passed a very extensive anti-Muslim um, uh, Bigotry resolution and an anti Islamophobia bigot um, resolution. So, so that's who we have been. But I also very much believed that if the uh, if that people needed to know beforehand that if they were going to elect me as president of the AFT, they needed to know that I was an out lesbian and that I would not let my I would not hide that. And so, you know, we've done a whole bunch of stuff in terms of. Um, You know, uh, we have this website called Share My Lessons. We do a whole bunch of lessons about tolerance, lessons about history. We'll do lessons, you know, in this month about pride and about Stonewall and things like that.
7: So we've got just about a a minute and a half left, and, you know, I... um know that the AFT and the UFT have been heavily involved in fighting discrimination and also pushing for marriage equality. You got married last year, a right that we didn't have for some time. So what did that moment mean to you in our final minute?
1: So first off, I had, you know, I, I, like so many others, kept on poo-pooing marriage. And I have no idea now, as I'm 61 years old, whether I poo-pooed it because I didn't have the right or poo-pooed it because I poo-pooed it. And because, you know, whatever. <laughs> it's pretty remarkable to have this right. And at 61, to actually, I kind of look at my, you know, my hand, and I quite can't believe that I wear a wedding ring every day. Um, and it does, it was pretty remarkable that moment to be, get married, to celebrate that, and to understand what that meant um, legally and emotionally. Um, we still have a way to go because we can't, we can't stop, you know, marriage is a right for, in some ways, for the wealthy. We can't, we have to make sure that people can't be fired on Monday after they get married on Sunday. And frankly, given where the state, where the Supreme Court is, and given who the Trump administration and Trump is himself, and looking at what is going on in terms of reproductive rights, um, the 2020 elections become more important than ever. So we must make sure that there's fairness for all. Not just for us who have the right to get married now, but for all. That's what Stonewall should mean to us. It should be what um, the suffragist movement is, the anti slavery movement is. It should be we should believe that all of us are in it to create diversity, equality, tolerance, opportunity, justice.
7: Randy Weingarten, thank you so much for joining me. Jeff Simmons here on WBAI. So we'll be right back in just a few moments uh, with Pride, Progress, and Politics, 50 Years Since Stonewall. You're listening to WBAI 99.5 FM. Welcome back. You're listening to WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm Jeff Simmons, and this is WBAI's special coverage, Pride, Progress, and Politics, 50 years since Stonewall. If you're a WBAI listener, then you know we are commercial free. We're not corporate sponsored, and we provide a diversity of progressive voices. Today is our final day of our spring fundraising effort, so I encourage you to show your support if BAI means something to you. You know, one of our previous callers mentioned how she first heard about the Stonewall Uprising on WBAI, and that was important to her. So if BAI means something to you. Please give us a call today and pledge at 516 620 3602 or go online to give to that is the number two give to WBAI.org. You could even text if you're on your smartphone, uh, text WBAI to 41444. So I'm an avid reader. I soak up up all types of books, and I enjoy reading about former presidents and their legacies and business books, but I also read about gay history, and I'm reading actually one now by Victoria No called Fag Hags, Divas, and Moms about the straight women allies in the AIDS community. Also on my bookshelf is Making History. It's been there for a while. Making History, the Struggle for Gay and Lesbian Equal Rights, written by Eric Marcus, Eric is also the author of a number of other books, including Making Gay History, The Half-Century Fight for Lesbian and Gay Equal Rights. And in these books, just two among many that, he, that he's written, he used oral history to tell the story of the first half century of the gay civil rights movement in the eyes and voices of those who have borne witness to a time of astonishing change. He now joins me now. Eric, welcome to WBAI.
5: Thanks, Jeff. Um, and I don't know if you know, because I just learned this recently as we were doing our research for the Making Gay History podcast. Um, WBAI used to have a show in the late 60s prior to Stonewall called The New Symposium. Um, and it's, we, we've been using some of the, we'll be using some of the audio in our upcoming season, and I was astonished by the discussions and who the people were on the show. One of the shows we, we uh, use a clip from was a show on cruising um, in, late, in 1968, I believe.
7: Well, BAI is always ahead of the pack. Yes. So we talk about Stonewall as, the, as a defining moment in the gay rights uh, movement, but it didn't start there. When you researched and wrote uh, Making History, you looked at a much broader timeline from 1945 to 1990.
5: Uh, why 1945? Well, I chose 1945 because there was, uh, during the war, uh, so many young people moved to the big cities. Either they were drafted, or they entered the military, or they went to work in factories. And uh, it's where you see this—the first stirrings of uh, discussions about what was possible for for gay people. So that's why it was also a convenient convenient starting point. Um, uh, in the second edition, which was called *Making Gay History*, I chose just a full half century, from 1950 to, to to the year 2000. So, in some ways, arbitrary and. I mentioned in the introduction to the to the book that there was an earlier movement that began in 1897 in Berlin, uh, founded by Magnus Hirschfeld, uh, Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld, and I only just uh, just sort of flick at that uh, that bit of history and learned so much a year ago when I was in Berlin for the 150th anniversary of Magnus Hirschfeld's birth. So really, the movement b- began in Berlin um, in, ni- in 1897, and we can trace some threads forward to 1924 with the founding of the Gay Organization in Chicago, which was broken up by the police. It didn't last very long. And from there to 1950, and Harry Hay and the founding of the Mattachine Society in Chicago, the first of the, the gay rights groups that survived in the U.S. And I was astonished to see that, that the threads of our movement really do go all the way back to 1897. So it's a much older movement than we often think.
7: So take us briefly through why Stonewall became such a seminal moment. What, what led up to this that you know, created what I you know, would call the perfect storm?
5: Well, so many factors went into to why Stonewall became Stonewall. Um, small S versus big S. Stonewall. um... couple of things. One is the movement was already 19 years old by 1969, so there was an existing infrastructure, so that when Stonewall happened, it was possible for uh, for the anger that was released and the energy that was released to be channeled into um, uh, what I call it, it was really the beginning of the gay liberation movement phase of the movement. Um, prior to the Stonewall, the movement was called the Homophile Movement. And the word homophile was chosen as a rejection of the word homosexual, and then the word gay was chosen as a rejection of the word homophile. And we know how that story played out uh, with language and years later. Mm -hmm. So you had an existing movement with an existing uh, infrastructure that was able to harness the energy. You had um, a period in American history where there had been uh, lots of activism in the women's movement, the black civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, Many conflicts with the police, so confronting the police was was uh, not unusual at all during that era. What was unusual was that you had street kids and young people who were gay and often people who would now be described as gender nonconforming or would identify themselves as gender nonconforming, challenging the police in a way that no one that people couldn't imagine. Because so you know, fags rising up against the police, chasing the police in the streets of New York. You know, it's a little embarrassing for the police. Um, so there were all those factors that 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 were involved, and then the people who organized in the aftermath, including people like Craig Rodwell, who had and Frank Kameny and Barbara Giddings and Kayla LaHoon, who had experience years of experience in the movement. They, uh, uh, especially Craig, was were involved in organizing the first Pride March um, in 1970 in New York, and also it was uh, they called around and suggested to other organizations around the country that they hold marches to mark that first anniversary. Um, as well, and in a way, they they so the, the, there were marches in Chicago, LA, and New York in that first year, and they um, uh, and I may have had that I may have that wrong. They have been San Francisco as well. Um, they branded Stonewall. They said, hold a pride, hold a march, a protest march in New York. that was called the Christopher Street Liberation Day uh, March, and do it every year thereafter. So Stonewall came to symbolize something much bigger than it was, but there. There were other things that happened right after Stonewall, or in, the, in, in uh, not long after. Like there was a raid of a bar called the Snake Pit, mm-hmm. um, where 167 men were arrested. It was organized by the raid was organized by the same uh, Inspector Seymour Pine who led the raid on the Stonewall. Um, when all these 167 men were taken to the Charles Street Police Station in the Greenwich Village, one of the young men jumped out of the second floor window. He was named Diego Vignales. Um, he was a, uh, an immigrant from Argentina. And he was impaled on the fence, Um, cut out of the fence. The fence was cut around him. He was taken to St. Vincent's Hospital and survived. Um, But there was a quickly organized protest march right after that. And that's when Morty Manford and Vito Russo, who became major figures in the movement uh, in the early 70s, first got involved. Um, So 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 it wasn't just Stonewall.
7: So when you researched the book, you did quite a few interviews uh, over several years. How did you choose your subjects?
5: Um, sometimes the subject chose me. So I did my initial research. I developed a timeline because no such thing existed at, uh, when I was doing my book in, in the late 1980s. I came across names of people who I thought would be interesting. Many of the, the names from the early period of the movement uh, were pseudonyms because it was too dangerous to use your real name. You could lose your job. You could be evicted uh, from your home. You could lose your family. So um, it was very challenging. I wrote lots of letters and um, made many phone calls. I mapped out. Uh, I mapped out the history that I wanted to cover. Um, each story had to move the history forward. I wanted a range of people in terms of, of gender, ethnicity, and race. Um, uh, and everyone I interviewed had to be able to tell a good story because it was oral history, printed oral history. Um, and so that was critical that people could tell a story. It's a little less critical in doing the podcast because I don't need nearly as much material. Um, So I'll just give you one example of how I came across one person. I wanted to interview somebody in Denver uh, from the 1950s who was involved in the movement then because I knew there was a a convention of the Manishing Society in in Denver in the late 1950s. So I called my friends who owned the gay bookshop in Denver, who I would interviewed for my first book, The Mill Couples Guide, and said, do you know a guy named Elver Barker who I knew had been involved in the Manishing Society? And they said, yes. So they gave me Elver's number. I called Elver. He said he'd be happy to be interviewed. Um, he said, but there's also someone else you should talk to—a man named Wendell Sayers. I haven't talked to him in years. He was briefly involved in the movement. African American man. He was in his 80s by the time I interviewed him, um, and his story went all the way back to 1920 when he was sent to the Mayo Clinic to be dy- diagnosed as a homosexual. So some of it was serendipitous. Uh, some of it was very planned. So a range of reasons why peop- I wound up uh, interviewing specific people. But I could have interviewed, and I interviewed 100 people, recorded more than uh, 300 hours of audio. I could have interviewed a different hundred people and told a similar story. Um, so I also had a limited amount of time, so I had to... I, 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 uh, it was often triage. Who can I get to based on my budget? Who can tell a good story? Who fits this particular need?
7: So you created this oral archive uh, through all these interviews. What were some of the common themes that emerged?
5: Two. Looking back, there were really two common themes um, in terms of what drove the movement. Um, one was... Um, anger I said over and over again to people it's so courageous what you did and they'd say no no, I was angry I was angry at what was done to me I was beaten I was I lost my job um any my my friend was killed Um, uh... so anger about what was done to them or done to someone they loved the other was the pursuit of love Um, people were looking for boyfriends. they were looking for girlfriends and they got into the movement because they could find other people like themselves so those were two very common themes that I found And there was another thing people said to me over and over again. I did what I did because I didn't want anyone to grow up suffering the way I did. Um, So a lot of it was was altruistic. People uh, recognized that that they had the capacity to change the world in ways that would make it easier for the next generation.
7: So as I mentioned, the oral archive, I do want to, in our final minutes, talk about what is happening uh, with all of these uh, uh, these recordings. Talk a little about the podcast and about what's uh, your affiliation, your connection with the New York Public Library.
5: Uh-huh. The New York Public Library houses my collection. They, uh, when I donated it to them in uh, 2008, they agreed to digitize my whole collection. So all of my audio is available at the New York Public Library. Unfortunately, I have to go there, and not all the, the audio is available yet because there's uh, some of it's closed for X number of years for a variety of reasons. The podcast we launched three years ago. There are about 45 episodes currently up and available both on our website at makinggayhistory.com and also for the usual platforms. We're launching our new season, uh, our Stonewall 50 season, uh, this coming Thursday, and there'll be four episodes in the month of June every Thursday um, with a surprise on June 28th, but I can't tell you about it because it's a, it's a surprise. <laughs> uh,
7: I also noted, uh, because I do some work with the Museum of Jewish Heritage, that uh, I believe you've got two events that are connected with that. There's a range of events you're doing this month.
5: I can't even, I, I try not to think about all the events because it makes me anxious. One of the events is I'm uh, I'm interviewing the author of, um, of Gay Berlin at the Museum of Jewish Heritage, the, the Holocaust Museum in, in Battery Park, Um, I also did an event uh, at the Jewish Museum on Fifth Avenue, that's already passed, with uh, two of my favorite artists, Deb Kass and uh, Ross Blechner. Um, You can see their work at that museum. There are more than 400 events uh, listed on the calendar. Uh, You'll find it at stonewall50consortium.org. It's an organization I chair. We represent 230 nonprofit organizations planning more than 400 events uh, between now and June 30th.
7: So as we close, how can people learn more about you and also check out your podcast?
5: Um, Best way, if you are accustomed to downloading podcasts, uh, you can find Making Gay History on all the players. Um, You can also go to the website, makinggayhistory.com, and find all of the episodes there. And for anything related to Stonewall and uh, Stonewall events, I suggest going to stonewall50consortium.org where you'll also find a fact sheet in addition to a list of all of the events on the calendar that we have there and also a list of all the exhibitions uh, uh, on that website as well.
7: So, Eric, Marcus, thank you so much for joining me. Jeff Simmons here on WBAI.
5: Jeff, it's a pleasure. It's been so many years, and I'm glad we had the chance to talk.
7: Great. Have a wonderful Pride.
5: Thank you. You too. Bye-bye.
7: So – I've asked a number of people in recent weeks, you know, what they considered as I was preparing for the show, what they consider the defining moments in the fight for equality since Stonewall. And often one of the key topics that came up and something we talked a little about with Randy Weingarten was marriage equality. The path to achieving this was fought on so many levels and it went on to reach uh, the nation's highest court. This brings me to our next guest, Evan Wilson. Evan was the founder and president of Freedom to Marry, that is the organization that spearheaded the national strategy for winning marriage equality for same-sex couples in our country. He joins me now. Welcome to WBAI, Evan. Good to be with you. So I had read this, that you had written your college thesis uh, at Harvard Law on Freedom to Marry in 1983. Looking back on that, why did you decide to take this on and what were the arguments that you posed?
4: Yeah, it was actually my law school thesis. Ah. I I wrote it in, as you noted, in 1983, the third year of law school for me. Uh, there
7: were really two
4: major influences that led to my writing that paper. I mean, which which one has to write? One has to write a paper about something, and I chose to write it about gay people and about the freedom to marry. And the reason was these two life experiences that had really shaped my thinking. As a as a the first was that in between college and law school, I was in the Peace Corps. And it was while I was serving in the Peace Corps as a 21-year-old in a remote corner of a very small country in West Africa, Togo, that I actually began having sex with guys. And... I realized as I was having sex with my friends and others in my small village there in in Africa, that uh, many of the guys were really probably not gay. They were not like me in that they were not gay, but, you know, they were friendly. They liked me. They were interested. They were curious. They were accommodating. Uh, but, But ultimately, we had sex and, you know, went on being friends, but it really wasn't for them. But that some of the other guys that I had sex with, actually, I felt were gay. They were like me. But unlike me, they lived in a country where the law and the, the culture and the experience and the choices available to them would not allow them to live a life as who they really were. In fact, they didn't even really have a language for it. And so that taught me a lesson as a 21-year-old that really shaped my thinking, and that was that who you are is profoundly shaped by the choices and even the language that your society offers you. And so I tucked that lesson away and finished my Peace Corps service and, and came into law school. And as I was a law student, now being much more open about who I was and being uh, beginning to build a life as a gay person, I read the book that changed my life. And that book was John Boswell's Christianity, Social Tolerance, and Homosexuality, and it was this... Epic, huge, groundbreaking, award winning book in which, in 16 languages, he traced the history of Western civilization from biblical times through to the Renaissance in its treatment of gay people and homosexuality. And I have always been passionate about history, even as a young kid, and to this day. So, reading this history of, excuse me, of homosexuality and of gay people shaped my thinking in a very profound way also, because the main takeaway I had from the book was that things had once been different. And if they had been different in how society viewed gay people and homosexuality, it could be different again. So now when it came time to write my paper, I took these two thoughts, these two insights that I had gotten as a young person, and applied them to my own life. I knew I wanted to write this paper about how we could change things for gay people, how we could make things different in our society. And I asked myself, what's at the heart of the discrimination against gay people? And what I concluded was that it's who we love. So then I asked myself, well, what is the primary structure? What is the primary language in which our society, and pretty much every other, talks about, regulates, engages in thinking about love? And, of course, that is marriage. And so I felt that by claiming the freedom to marry, we would be doing two things. Number one, we would be claiming something enormously important in its own right. Being able to marry or being denied the freedom to marry matters across virtually every area of life, from birth to death, with taxes in between. It affects so many choices, so many protections, so many... Engagements in life, how you re- relate to your loved ones, how you relate to your family, how you relate to your kids, how you relate to your parents, how you relate to the, your your office, your coworkers, your employer, your society, your government. To be denied that is to be denied something really important. But I also believed that by claiming the freedom to marry, we would be seizing a language a common language that would be an engine of transformation for non-gay people in their thinking about who gay people are. We would be claiming these values of love, commitment, family, inclusion, dignity, equality in a way that they could relate to and connect with and that would help them come to a different understanding of who gay people are, thereby not only allowing us to win marriage but to transform our place in society. So what I what I concluded was that Fighting for the freedom to marry was important because marriage was both a goal and a strategy. It was a way of changing things. And that's what led me to write that paper as a
7: student. So you went on to found Freedom to Marry in 2003, and then it took a dozen years, you know, to get uh, up through the Supreme, uh, Supreme Court. Uh, what do you think swayed opinion during, you know, what were the factors, in, you know, especially when it came to public polls, when it went from a, a minuscule, I think it was about a quarter support, to more than about 63% by 2015?
4: Right. Well, you said a dozen years. That was really only the period of time when I created this mm-hmm. campaign, Agreed. Freedom to Marry, to carry to focus the strategy and carry the battle. But, of course, our movement had engaged in this struggle for much, much longer. In the immediate aftermath of Stonewall, which obviously we're celebrating this month, there were couples who went to court in cases all across the country, uh, and they were seeking the freedom to marry. So gay people have always wanted... The freedom to marry. And right after Stonewall in 1969, couples were in court. One of those cases even reached the United States Supreme Court in 1972, which, like all the other courts, rubber-stamped the discrimination, threw those couples out. The courts were not ready, and the country wasn't ready. There hadn't been enough conversation. But that first wave of litigation, which I was writing about when I wrote my paper 10 years later, set up a no that we did not have to take as the final answer. And so what happened over the next several decades, including my work on it for 32 years, was that our movement engaged in a conversation with millions and millions and millions and millions of people that changed hearts and minds. And that changing of hearts and minds, accompanied by work in the courts, work in the legislatures, and work ultimately at the ballot box, allowed us to transform the law as a product of transforming hearts and minds. And the key engine of change in that process, in that struggle, was conversation. Talking with non-gay people about who gay, and eventually also who gay and trans people are, and what our shared values are. These values of love, of family, of connection, of treating others as you'd want to be treated, the golden rule, that of millions and millions of conversations created the context in which we could also deploy the other methodologies of change, litigation, legislation, public education, direct action, fundraising, electoral work. And as our movement got more engaged in working all these different methodologies, and as millions and tens of millions of gay and non-gay people came into the conversation And as we were able to build a campaign, Freedom to Marry, that worked with key partner organizations like Lambda Legal and the ACLU and GLAD in Massachusetts, Gay and Lesbian Advocates and Defenders and National Center for Lesbian Rights. that they could supply the legal piece and some of the public education work, and others at the state level could engage in lobbying and legislative work, and together we could drive a strategy that brought all of these pieces together in a sustained campaign to get the job done. That's how we were able to succeed and have this epic transformation in hearts and minds that set the stage for the massive transformation in law. Now, obviously, none of this means that we're done. The work of the Freedom to Marry campaign succeeded, and I closed Freedom to Marry down because we got what we brought to the table done. But the work of our movement, which I and I'm sure most of your listeners are part of as well, of course is far from finished, and we need to continue harnessing the power of what we've won, including this marriage conversation, the visibility, the empathy, the shared values, the connection. We need to harness that to the ongoing work for gay people, for trans people, for bisexual people, and for non-gay people who are affected also by discrimination that excludes and divides people in our country.
7: I think of the evolution uh, of uh, elected officials' uh, you know, sentiments on this, and uh, I see uh vice president then vice president biden's interview in 2012 when he said you know the matter is simply about who you love how monumental of a moment was that in this effort to gain the right to marry well
4: the the vice president's support building on the support of others who were kind of pushing and helping paved the way including people like speaker pelosi uh, together with the president obama who was obviously in close conversation with the vice president and who together brought the administration to where it needed to be, this was, again, an enormously important engine of change. It gave permission to millions of others to rethink where they were. President Obama was using the word for a period of time, evolve. His position was evolving, he would say. Uh, And what that did was allow us to give more people the space to, in Lincoln's words, think anew change their mind, to come to the right place. But of course, that didn't just happen because they saw something on TV or because one politician said something. It happened through the combination of these millions of conversations and the work of putting points on the board, of getting the building blocks of legal and political change. Our strategy for winning the freedom to marry reason Freedom to Marry as an organization was created was to drive this strategy, and it wasn't a secret. We put it on our website. We wanted people to know. It said that the way we are going to win, the way we're going to achieve this epic transformation, is by ultimately getting the Supreme Court to do right what it had done wrong in 1972, to rule in favor of the Freedom to Marry nationwide and to bring the whole country to national resolution. But the way you do that our strategy said, was not just to run to court. We had already tried that. The way you do that is by working on three tracks, and we laid them out as the synergistic work that our movement and this campaign needed to do. Track one was to win states, to win the freedom to marry in states, because you get married in a state. You don't get married by the laws passed by Congress. You get married according to the laws of New York or Utah or Alabama. So we needed to win states. When we started, we had zero. We needed a critical mass of states. And we set our mind to the state-by-state building block pieces of work that would allow us to achieve legal and political victories that would get some people married, that would thereby spark more conversation and show people that the sky didn't fall. Track two in the strategy, all of this was on our website, was to build not just a critical mass of states, but a critical mass of support. We needed to grow that public support, as you said, from 27 percent when I and my non-gay co-counsel, Dan Foley, did the first marriage case that actually won in Hawaii back in the 90s. We needed to grow from that 27 percent to a critical mass of support. We needed to build a majority and then strengthen that majority. Ultimately, as you said, we built that majority to 63 percent by the time we stood in front of the Supreme Court in 2015.
7: So, Evan, and track, Oh, go ahead, with the track three. I know we've got about yeah, two sorry. minutes left.
4: Yeah, sorry. Track three in the strategy was to tackle and end the federal discrimination, the so-called Defense of Marriage Act that had been piled on top of the discrimination. So, and by working in all three of these tracks synergistically, not sequentially, we worked on all of them, and when we got stuck on one, we could move to the other. When we built on one, we could come back and reinforce progress on the other. By having that strategy together with a campaign that was focused and a movement that was doing multiple things, we were able to combine and and ultimately, under the Constitution, secure the freedom to marry that was always there in the Constitution, but that we needed to get the country and the courts to see how that constitutional guarantee applies to the people in front of the court, gay people, trans people,
7: us. So, Evan, in our final minute, I'm really curious, given what we've been witnessing recently with a woman's right to choose and what's going on in a number of states, uh, given our current administration and the composition of the Supreme Court, do you feel that marriage equality will be threatened? Do you feel that we're going to see uh, the strides that have been achieved turned into setbacks, that the administration will focus on this to be able to reverse these?
4: There's no question that, you know, as gay people, as trans people, we are under assault from this Trump-Pence regime and its Republican enablers in Congress. And we are, of course, one of many communities and, and one set of values among many that are under assault, whether it be immigrants or Muslims or Jews or people of color or women being denied access to health care and, and autonomy. Uh, we, are, we are all under assault because our country is so deeply not on track so deeply on the wrong track under this regime and so the most important thing we need to do is reclaim that political power and throw these people out and get the right people in office to begin reinvigorating our democracy and restoring our commitment to our american values having said that yes of course anything can happen but i don't think the most likely thing to happen is that we're going to lose the key gains we have won, particularly the freedom to marry, though there will be attacks, as, as we're seeing on transgender people, as we're seeing with the effort to carve religious exemptions into law. There will be attacks, and we will win some of those battles, and we will lose some of those battles, but ultimately we will win. The most important thing I think we need to do as gay and trans people is keep our eyes on the prize of our own work, but most importantly stand in solidarity with the others, as we have been, and reclaim political power to get the country back on track. When we do that, because we have come so far in our engagement with the American people and transforming people's understanding of who gay and trans people are, the country will be ready to keep moving forward. We're not losing right now some of these battles under Trump because people are anti-gay and anti-trans, though there are opponents who are. We're losing because of the political dysfunction. And if we join with others in the political work that needs to be done to reclaim our country while continuing to talk about our lives and shared values as gay and trans people, we will win.
7: Evan Wilson, thank you so much for joining me. Jeff Simmons here on WBAI.
4: Happy to be with you.
7: So Evan was just talking about the country moving forward. I want to go back. I want to go back to the point where the turning point that really uh, is the focus of of today, uh, looking back 50 years ago at the Stonewall Inn. So the Stonewall Inn, which is the Tavern in Greenwich Village, uh, that's where the building, buildings are located, and the surrounding area are listed in the National Register of uh, Historic Places, and about 19 years ago uh, were named a historic landmark. In fact, they were the first LGBTQ historic landmarks. Uh, ownership has changed over time. Uh, Stacey Lentz, who was born, if I could have this correct, Stacey, was born the year after Stonewall, and she is an LGBT rights activist and co-owner of the Stonewall Inn. She's also the co-founder of the Stonewall Inn Gives Back Initiative, which we're going to talk about in a moment. She stepped in to become a co-partner and investor in 2006 after the inn had fallen into disrepair and risked being closed for good. Stacey, welcome to WBAI.
9: Thank you, Jeff. I'm excited to be here.
7: Thank you so much. So, the Stonewall Inn, uh, which you stepped in to become a co partner and investor, had fallen into repair, as I mentioned. What did this signify to you? Why did you want to get involved?
9: Yeah, for me, I mean, obviously, I think it's hopefully not just for me, but globally, it signifies fighting back against oppression. It really is that LGBTQ symbol of equality. Um, when I had find that, when I had found out about it going under potentially, um, I do, I wanted to save history and really kind of uses it as a vehicle to go out and make change. And it's a once-in-a-life opportunity um, to really make sure that people also heard the story of Stonewall, heard the story of the brave men and women who stood up in 1969 to make a difference and give us all the rights that we have today. Um, so there was no way my partners and I wanted it to turn into a Starbucks, which it could have. Uh, so we're really excited that we were able to uh, to step in and kind of put it back to its former glory and also keep it at the forefront of the gay rights struggle. We didn't want Stonewall just to be about its history. We wanted to keep it at the forefront for the fight for equality currently, like we're doing today. What does it mean
7: to you when you see youth, I mean, obviously 21 and older in the city, uh, youth come into uh, the Stonewall Inn, do they understand the significance?
9: You know, I think they do now. Um, I think that was one of our main goals um, over the past 12 years, was really trying to educate a younger generation about exactly what happened there. Um, I think a lot of them didn't understand the significance and the sacrifice of their LGBTQ elders and what they went through so they could have the rights that they have today and probably just some of them take for granted. So one of our main focuses was really educating a younger generation. We'll bring in schools from NYU, from Penn State, um, college kids like that, that we have come into the bar where we sit and have uh, one of our bartenders who was around during that time period and educate them and tell them stories. Obviously, we don't serve them alcohol, they just get soda and water. Um, but it's a way for us to really explain the story of Stonewall and make sure that they do get the significance when they walk in the door.
7: So you're listening to WBAI. I'm Jeff Simmons. Uh, We are also streaming at WBAI.org. We're talking with Stacy Lentz from the Stonewall Inn. Talk to me a little about the uh, creation of the Stonewall Inn Gives Back initiative, when it was founded, what its purpose is.
9: Sure. Yeah, so we founded this really in 2017. We decided after, again, of of 12 years of hosting tons of fundraisers tons of charity events for for everyone from the Human Rights Campaign to GLAAD to the Hedrick Martin Institute, uh, all kinds of LGBTQ um, organizations that do incredible work, um, that we really kind of wanted to formalize the process and and start our own. Uh, Really twofold was to keep the legacy of Stonewall alive um, and make sure that we could do our own programming from a historical standpoint, but also we saw a need and a niche to go into places where equality has been slow to arrive, places like Mississippi, places like Kansas, places like Tennessee, places like Puerto Rico, um, primarily in some of those 28 states where you can still be fired for being LGBTQ. Um, we understood that we had a responsibility um, being innkeepers of history to make sure that we're giving back to the community, and especially in communities where you know it's not so easy to be LGBTQ. Not just because of the laws are against you, but because you face daily discrimination and and social stigma is a lot more um, at a higher rate, a lot more consequential than living in New York or L.A. or San Francisco, where, you know, it's pretty easy to be gay.
7: You know, it's interesting as we're talking about this, I think of my own coming out process and also the fact that living here in New York City, you know, I concede that I li- I at one point felt I just lived in a bubble. I enjoy a lot yeah. of these freedoms. And you know, what's the message, you know, when you're uh, supporting other organizations across the country, you know, what's the message you want to get out particularly to youth in those areas?
9: We, we, we want to get out to them that they're not isolated, that they're not alone. Um, for example, one of the things that we, we've done is help flow the first ever um, Southeast Kansas Pride in Independence, Kansas, which is predominantly a rural area that, believe it or not, has a large LGBTQ population, and to make sure that they understand that visibility can actually save lives. Um, So to to make sure that when they see their state-by-state legislators voting all these crazy religious freedom laws that can pass, voting against them all the time, that we're here for them. They have the support, um, not just of Stonewall Inn and and Stonewall in general, but the LGBTQ community living in these cities. Because predominantly we're fundraising in New York, San Francisco, and L.A. and giving back uh, across those those places across the country that don't have those things, um, access to funds. Um, awareness programs or support. So we just want them to know that we support them um, and that uh, their visibility is important. Uh, And also maybe even educate, you know, not to get too political, but make sure that their allies know when they go and vote and they vote um, largely Republican or in a conservative matter that they're voting against their brothers, sisters, daughters, and people that are residing in those small towns and those small communities across the country and that votes and votes and votes uh, has consequences and you have to make a difference there.
7: You know, it's interesting because I said that I live in a bubble, uh, but at the same time, we do have in New York City, we do witness uh, increases of... Uh, or an increase of uh, hate crimes and violence. I mean, I even think of what just took place on the cusp of World Pride Month up in Harlem where the yeah. uh, pride flags were burned. You know, what You know what climate do you feel we are living in looking 50 years after Stonewall? You know, is there reason still to be concerned?
9: There's lots of reason to be concerned. One of the, my biggest things that I always say is that the fight that we started in 1969 um, and those brave men and women did in front of Stonewall, it's not over. It's not done. Um, and especially where we are in a climate globally where we're seeing a, a shift to more conservative, um, you know, populist values uh, where we could, we're going backwards. Uh, if you look at the, what the Trump administration has done to our trans brothers and sisters, you can, you can see that clearly. So we've got to make sure that we keep that message out there because a lot of the rights that we've gotten could easily be taken away with an executive order and a stroke of a pen. Uh, So we've got to make sure that the younger generation knows not only that this is a a dangerous time, currently, believe it or not, um, but they've got to continue that fight. They have to pick up where the brave men and women in 1969 left off, and it's their responsibility not to take those rights for granted and to get out there and understand that there's there's a culture shift that is alarming globally. Um, against LGBTQ people. And we've got to make sure that we continue that fight.
7: And as much as, you know, we've talked about the Stonewall Gives Back initiative, uh, supporting other organizations, you also have taken on an advocacy role. And I had read that at one point you work with GLAAD to uh, go after Guinness to ensure that Guinness would be boycotted if it didn't withdraw from sponsoring the St. Patrick's Day Parade.
9: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, so just being that it's a brand, let's be honest about it, and it's a global symbol, so we understand the power of that brand and the power of what it means, and we try to constantly use that for good. Um, so we did partner with Glad on that, because we understood if we said, hey, we're not going to serve Guinness, um, if you're going to continue not to let us uh, LGBTQ people march in, this, in the St. Patrick's Day Parade, that... Bars across the country would also sign on gay bars and follow Stonewall's lead, uh, which is exactly what happened. I think as a community overall, we understand um, pink dollars, we understand how to use boycotts. we understand financially um, that you know if all the LGBTQ people in the world were combined, we 'd have the fourth largest GDP as a country behind Russia and China and the u s which is crazy. And I think we try to use our spending power uh, for good as well.
7: So it was only a few years ago that President Obama declared Stonewall a national monument. What did that moment mean to you?
9: It was incredible. Um, I remember obviously that we had worked with the, the Parks Department and many stakeholders, and obviously a lot of local New York politicians that, that they really made all this happen. And but for us, just to be you know kind of the ones that stepped in to, to save the, the in itself in 2006, it was overwhelming. Um, I remember sitting on my couch and getting a phone call from um, a, two, you know, a 202 number and being like, wait, that's Washington, D.C. And on the other end was like, Stacy, it's finally happening. And then get down there, you know, this is the date. We're going to have a press conference right now. Um, we're letting everyone globally know that Stonewall is a national monument. And uh, the person on the other of the phone identified themselves as LGBTQ liaison for the White House. And first of all, I didn't even know we had one, which was incredible, right, <laughs> to think about that that the Obama administration was so progressive that they had an LGBTQ liaison at the White House. So that was incredible. Um, And just seeing people down there and celebrating it, it it was unbelievable. It's really also incredible for us when, you know, again, the the inn itself is a bar. um, But seeing young children tour around the park right across the street and learning that story from ages of 10 and up is just so rewarding and overwhelming. Um, and, and it's just a wonderful thing for our entire community to make sure that Stonewall is in the same, you know, significance as the Statue of Liberty. Um, it's just crazy to think, and we couldn't be more proud about it.
7: How can people learn more about the Stonewall In Gives Back Initiative?
9: Yep, you can go to Stonewall Inn, uh, in stonewallinitiative.org, and you can check us out there. Uh, you can learn how to donate. You can learn about our programs. You can learn about the grassroots organizations that we are supporting across the country. Um, And, again, I want to also encourage people as well to have to remember the monument is really the surrounding area and the facade of, of the Stonewall. That's really the monument. We inside are a private business, and the only way we can keep it as a safe space that's open for everybody is if you come in and drink and spend some money with us. So hopefully during World Pride and Stonewall 50, you'll come down and celebrate, and I can't wait to see you at Stonewall.
7: Stacey Lentz, thank you so much for joining me. Jeff Simmons here on WBAI. Thank you for having me. So as the author John Steinbeck once said, you can only understand people if you feel them in yourself. A study just two years ago found that black Americans were far more likely to perceive the prejudice experienced by the LGBT community than were their white compatriots, according to uh, an online article in Quartz. Nearly three quarters of black Americans believe that the gay and transgender people in the U.S. face discrimination. But what about those who've been marginalized for multiple reasons, for being a member of a minority group and gay or trans or lesbian? A columnist in The Root put it this way. Quote, for black LGBTQ folks, we sit at the bottom of that pyramid in our community. This brings me to our final guest this hour, Earl Falks, president and CEO of the Center for Black Equity, which is formerly known as, it was formerly known as the International Federation of Black Pride. Uh, It builds a global network of LGBT individuals, allies, community-based organizations, and pride's. Uh, And prides as well dedicated to achieving equality and social justice for black LGBT communities through health equity economic equity and social equity The new name had been chosen to refocus and elevate its deep commitment to the organization's mission of achieving equality and justice for black LGBT communities Earl, welcome to WBAI
10: My pleasure. Thank you for having me
7: So first talk a little about the Center for Black Equity its history and origins and its mission
10: well, the Center for Black Equity, as you uh, stated, was formed as the International Federation of Black Pride twenty-one years ago, and the purpose at that time was to really have a build a network of the Black Pride organizations that were eight. DC Black Pride, which I was running, was the first one and the oldest. And we other people came to DC, went back to their communities, and say, "Hey, we can do a Black Pride as well." And so the the origins of the CBE, as we call it was to organize a black pride so we can help each other and provide tech. Um, We never had an idea that we would have 55 black pride organizations around the world. And so as a result, in in 2012, we decided to broaden our scope to not have just black pride, but also include other um, indigenous community-based organizations and other networks of, of, of black LGBTQ people around the world. And to focus not just on building up black pride, but also on helping provide communities to build their own communities to look like and to meet the needs that are prevalent in those communities. Not all communities are like We're not monolithic. And one model doesn't fit necessarily fit all. So we've grown and we, we do a lot of health equity. We do a lot of things around social equity, um, health equity, especially on HIV AIDS, which is still very prevalent in the African-American uh, community. And we work around women's cancer issues and transgender health issues, which are also um, really being ignored in our community. And so by focusing on these, we hopefully raise the visibility of these issues so that people can get the help they need to have hold and full lives.
7: So how have homophobia and transphobia in ethnic minority communities evolved? Or is it is it as pervasive as it was decades ago?
10: No, there's improvement. There's definitely, there's definitely improvement. The improvement is really that we're raising visibility in our community. And and by doing so, people actually, a lot of the, the prejudice comes from the lack of information and ignorance. Uh, people um, don't know a whole lot. Of, they don't think they know many transgender individuals. And therefore, they have a lot of ignorance towards how they live and what their needs are and and, and their role in the community. And I think the CBE and other uh, like-minded organizations have been raising the visibility and trying to create safe spaces for our transgender uh, brothers and sisters and, and the LGBTQ community and as, as a whole. Um,
7: Talk to me about your own social consciousness, your coming out process.
10: Well, you know, I'm the son of a minister, the oldest son of a minister, and I am very fortunate that my father and my mother did not teach us prejudice. I never heard anything about homophobia in the black church. I never heard any preachings or sermons against gay people. This was not something we discussed. And I have a lesbian sister who's deceased, but we grew up in a very—we were left alone. We, we weren't forced to, con, to conform to heterosexual— normative uh, behavior and so we were just left alone and we came out kind of like i don't i, I can't say that ever came out i was really never in um and so i was shocked when i became older and moved to new york city and found out when people had aids that their families rejected them i could never imagine my family ever doing that matter of fact they pointedly told me to make it clear to me that um if something ever happened to you you know you know you're going to be taken care of So, you know, you have to come home. So my my story is a little bit different. There's some people who share the same story, but most people don't. But, you know, my consciousness raising was the fact that people were not being cared for by their families during the HIV AIDS crisis when it started. And I was horrified. I was horrified and shocked. And I started volunteering for God's Love We Deliver in New York, and I started working for the Highest in AIDS Foundation in New Jersey. And then I came down to Washington to work for Damien Ministries, which is a faith-based HIV AIDS organization dealing with the poorest of the poor. So, um, And as a result of doing HIV AIDS work, I saw the, the unfairness that LGBT people were being treated by their families and by society as a whole. And I started blending into a little bit more politics and also doing more social justice work.
7: What does Stonewall mean to you?
10: Stonewall means, you know, I'm I'm afraid that I'm old enough to remember Stonewall as a, as a teenager. I was just amazed. I was living in South Jersey. I was amazed as right was going on because I knew it was gay, but I didn't have any way to measure it and to identify what that meant. And I can say that Stonewall meant awareness. It meant to me awareness. I was was aware that there were this 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 this, this there were people who were called. Queer and uh, and I, even though I lived only ninety miles away, it was like nine thousand miles away, and I just really was faulted I used to sneak into my the Village Voice came into our public library, and I used to sneak and read it, and and that was how I learned about the gay community, and that's how I came to come to New York City
7: you and I have something in common because I remember doing that as well. Uh, so uh, I've, I've I've been reading up on this and it, what also I find extremely troubling is that black transgender and gender non-conforming people face some of the highest levels of discrimination. What are some of the issues that come into play?
10: Well, again, it's ignorance. It's just that uh, people who are different are always going to be treated different, who are perceived as being different. It's really out of ignorance. It's really out of the fact that Um, black people, and it's it's really ironic that black people who have been the subject of so much discrimination, discriminate against people who are different. And we were discriminated against people who are different as well, um, because we were black. It's not ignorance. It's just a lack of knowledge, a lack of information, a lack of understanding what transgender means. And I think that the more we put visibility on this The the more people will be more accepting to understand. Once they get to know someone who's transgender, they understand they're a human being, and they get to be aware of their differences.
7: So we're already in the middle in the middle in the beginning stages of this presidential campaign. And looking ahead, uh, especially as this campaign picks up, how significant do you think LGBTQIA issues, equality issues, are going to be, and how polarizing? Do I have you?
10: Uh, 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 Yes, I'm sorry. I I didn't hear the question. Oh, Uh,
7: as we look towards the evolution of this presidential campaign, how significant do you think LGBTQIA issues are going to be?
10: Oh, I think it may be very, you know, for the Democratic Party, which I'm a part of uh, as the LGBT caucus chair, um, there's not going to be a nominee who's going to be able to be um, elected without having embracing LGBTQIA issues and a full LGBT equality. That's not going to happen. There's not going to be a Democratic candidate who's going to be able to get the nomination without doing so. And and, and the election is for, for a lot of people, including myself, will include um, if that candidate and that administration is going to focus on full equality and full citizenship for LGBT Americans. Um, I, I think it would be only... I, I don't understand why that's so inconceivable that we have citizens of this land who... Love this country so much and won't be allowed to serve in the military, which and they only want to serve in the military because they love this country, and this is the, this those are the ties that bind all of Americans of love for their country, and the fact that they're that the military doesn't allow transgender men and women to serve in this country is just unbelievable to me. I, I don't even it, it makes no sense to me. So this election is going to be about making people who are underclass citizens to make them full, give them full citizenship, as far as I'm concerned.
7: So it was just a few years ago you served as Grand Marshal of the Pride March here in New York City. As people march this year and mark World Pride, what do you want them to march for?
10: I want them to march for equality. I want them to march for humanity. Um... LGBT rights are human rights. I want, it's not just, we're not just providing special rights for LGBT citizens. We're talking about people who are undocumented, people who are women, who have reproductive rights. We're marching for full rights for people to decide how they want to live and how they want to be perceived in our society. And and I think this march and this parade and the Grand Marshal should be focusing on a full humanity for all of our citizens in this world. We're all tied in together. We have to live in a place where we have a good environment, where we have full citizenship, that people can earn a decent wage, that people can live in, in harmony with their neighbors and themselves. It's not a very difficult concept. We're not asking for anything that other people don't have.
7: Earl, how can people learn more about the Center for Black Equity?
10: Well, you can come into our website at www.centerforblackequity.org. And my email address is e.fowlkes at the Center for Black org.
7: Earl Falks, President and CEO of the Center for Black Equity. Thank you for joining me, Jeff Simmons, here on WBAI.
10: My pleasure. Thank you.
7: So I do want to remind our listeners that the, our coverage uh, does not end when I step off at uh, 3 o'clock. I would like you to stay with us because we've got programming throughout the afternoon. Uh, following me will be the folks from Radio uh, Gag, uh, Gays Against Guns, and then coming up after that from 4:30 to six, our colleagues from Out FM, WBAI's weekly progressive LGBTQIA public affairs and cultural program, are going to uh, cover follow, uh, the following topics like Reclaim Pride, which is going on at the same time as the mainstream march known as Heritage of Pride. They'll also have an interview with Jessica Stern, the director of Outright Action International, an interview. with with gay Puerto Rican pro-independence activist and former political prisoner Ricardo Jimenez and also a rebroadcast interview from two years ago with three longtime AIDS activists from different backgrounds who shed light on the hidden histories of the past 30 years of the iconic direct action AIDS organization ACT UP. So stay with us.
3: Hi, I'm Laura Flanders of The Laura Flanders Show, which airs Saturdays, 6.30 p.m. here on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. The Left Forum is right around the corner, and they have generously donated weekend passes to WBAI listener supporters who make a $50 pledge in support of WBAI. I've had the pleasure of hosting many panels and plenaries at the Left Forum over the years, and I'm doing it again this time. I'll be hosting the Saturday plenary on the 50th anniversary of Stonewall and a session with Chris Hedges and Rick Wolf on Lennon. So come meet me, Laura Flanders, and the others at the 2019 Left Forum and be part of a conversation about radically imagining and building a different future. Make a pledge of $50 today and lock in your free weekend pass to the Left Forum, taking place in Brooklyn, June 28th through June 30th. That's the 28th through the 30th in Brooklyn. Go to give, then the numeral 2, WBAI.org. That's give to WBAI.org and search Left Forum. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening. See you at the Left Forum.